Well, it's fitting as we continue through our season of Lent towards Easter and Good Friday. We're following along the story of Jesus as we see the night he was arrested and, and the false witnesses are being brought against him. We see the spiritual warfare going on, but we know that Jesus did not enter that battle unarmed or unequipped, did he? Even though it was the others who had swords, Jesus was fully armed, and this is what we've been learning about these last number of weeks in our series on spiritual warfare, which we are going to continue this week now into part nine, looking at the piece of the armor of God, which is the helmet of salvation. I would invite you to bow with me once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And so we ask, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak through your word to our hearts and minds today. We pray, Lord, that we would once more be ready to put on this equipment, every single piece of it, of this armor that you have given to us to fight this spiritual battle. That, Lord, we can not only stand our ground, but that we can be victorious against every scheme of the, of the enemy. And that, Lord, that we will prevail through faith in you. And so we ask that you would help us to that end this morning. Speak through your word. Speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning I'll begin with a a true story of a man named Stephen McQueen. And in this next slide you'll see Stephen McQueen holding something in his hands, which is in fact his helmet. Now, in an article by Matthew Cox in Military.com taken from March of 2019, he he shares the incredible true story that goes behind Sergeant Stephen McQueen and why he's holding his helmet. Staff Sergeant Stephen McQueen still can't believe how quickly he got back to his feet after a bullet from an enemy rifle struck him in the back of his helmet during an attack in Afghanistan last year. Two gunmen opened fire on McQueen and his fellow soldiers from the 1st Security Force Brigade. From a distance of only 20 feet, he was struck during the September 3rd shooting. I was surprised that I was able to react as quickly as I did because I knew what happened instantly. I knew I'd been shot, McQueen, age 30, told reporters at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. The bullet tore a large hole in the ballistic material of his helmet. But the Enhanced Combat Helmet, also known as an ECH, stopped the round as it was designed to do. There is nothing that I've experienced in my life that can relate to it, McQueen said. He described the sensation of being shot in the head. If I had to guess, I would say if you stood there and let a horse kick you in the back of the head, that's about how it felt. It was a lot of force. It knocked me to the ground. McQueen, standing next to his wife, Erin, said the experience has changed his view of the equipment that he actually didn't like to wear in the past. So before this incident, I thought the helmet was cumbersome and it was overkill, he said, joking that he would have rather gone out on patrols wearing a ball cap. I was sorely mistaken. This helmet works and I am living testimony to it. And from now on, all of my soldiers will wear it. If we're in a hostile environment, they won't take it off, period. Now, you could rightly say that Staff Sergeant McQueen's helmet was his physical salvation. As he said, it works, and I'm living evidence of that. 
There's zero question, none whatsoever, that from a range of 20 feet, had he not been wearing his ECH helmet, he would have been killed by the enemy's bullet. And in today's continuing study on the armor of God, as we'll see in this next slide, we're now going to transition over to looking at the Roman helmet that our Roman soldier would wear. Now, at this final piece of our defensive armament, provided for every soldier of Christ, we read of it simply in Ephesians 6 and verse 17, this instruction. Take the helmet of salvation. He doesn't elaborate any further on this piece of armor other than that to say, take the helmet of salvation. Now, a Roman soldier's helmet, such as the one in our picture, they were made out of heavy molded or beaten metal. The inside of the helmet was lined with leather to help keep them fitted on tightly as well as to make them slightly more comfortable than just having metal on your head. They also had, as you can see, a cheek piece that comes down on both sides, which was to protect the face from from strikes or blows that could come uh, grazing along the side of the face. Also, the officer's helmets had on top of it that iconic red fan mounted And uh, those are believed to have been mostly for ceremonial purposes and not worn in actual combat, though they could have been worn then as well. Now, the primary purpose of the helmet was, of course, to protect the soldier's head from any form of attack, particularly from the dangerous broadsword commonly used in the warfare of that day. Now, the broadsword, which was a large two-handed sword, There was also a shorter sword that would be more of a one-hand sword, but the broadsword, the two-handed sword, was often used by uh, cavalrymen who, when they would charge formations of of infantry soldiers on the ground, ground, they would ride by and they would swing these two-handed swords at the, the soldiers on the ground. They would swing it at their heads with the attempt to either split open their skull or just decapitate them entirely. And so, for this reason, a soldier's helmet was a vital piece of equipment. In fact, he would never even consider going into combat without having his helmet firmly placed upon his head. So, just as in our opening story for Staff Sergeant McQueen, his helmet provided his physical salvation. Without it, he would have been killed. So, too, in the spiritual realm, as we transition over from the physical to the spiritual, It is also God's helmet of salvation that is our spiritual salvation. So quite simply, without God's provision for and protection of our salvation, there is zero question that each one of us and each one of our souls, we would be condemned. Just as certainly as as Staff Sergeant McQueen would have certainly been killed by the enemy's bullet, without God's salvation provided to us through Jesus Christ, we too would certainly not only be killed, but our souls would be cast and condemned to an eternal death in the lake of fire for eternity. This is what the Bible tells us is a certainty. There is no doubt about this. And so this sobering truth, this reality, ought to make each one of us pause for just a moment and consider that This helmet of salvation is not just a nice optional piece of equipment that we can take it or leave it. No, this is absolutely vital, vital. We simply cannot live without it. 
For there is no salvation, none whatsoever, apart from God's salvation. And praise the Lord, he has provided that salvation for us through Jesus Christ. We've been singing many great hymns this morning pointing to just that, that it is Jesus, his sacrifice, his blood, his atoning death upon the cross that has provided that salvation for everyone who comes to him in faith and repentance of their sins and believes in what he has done for us. As Acts chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 says, For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, The stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. For there is no salvation in anyone else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. It is only in the name of Jesus. He is the only one, the only way by which we must be saved. Now it is an interesting thing, as I researched this about the the Romans and their customs, that there was actually sort of a ritual, almost a ceremony, whereby the Roman soldiers would receive their helmets from their commanding officer before going into battle. So there would be an armory, and, and of course, once they were on, you know, uh, on a campaign, then they were responsible to have all of their equipment, including their helmet, on their person, and to take care of it. However, when they were in the barracks before going on a campaign, their helmets weren't a standard part of equipment during civilian life, other than for perhaps ceremony or rituals. So before going on a campaign, there would be a ceremony whereby each helmet would be handed by the commanding officer to the soldier. And now it was the soldier's responsibility to receive that helmet offered to him, to take it and to put it on and to wear it on the campaign and into battle. And so in a similar way, we must also receive the helmet of salvation from our commander, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, this helmet, we cannot earn it. It's not something that we pay for. We, we cannot even merit it by our own good works. We cannot deserve it, for we certainly do not deserve it. It's simply because of God's great love for us, that Jesus loves us, that he offers us. He holds out his salvation for us. And now it is our choice to receive it and to put it on, this helmet of salvation, and to now wear it by faith. Now this is the required prerequisite to becoming a soldier of Christ and thereby enlisting in God's army. We must receive his salvation. He offers it to us. He has has done everything to make it available to us, but we must receive it and we must wear it. But once we do, once we are in Christ through faith, we are now in God's army. We are a soldier of Christ. And so this means that our battle against the enemy, against Satan, is not yet over. However, it does mean that we are on the winning side. So we're now in God's army. The battle's not done, but we know that we are on the winning side. For you see, when you leave Satan's broad road that leads to eternal death, and you start following Jesus' road that leads to eternal life, that's when some of Satan's most fierce and cunning attacks against you are going to come. Now often it's, it's sort of the reverse. We think that, oh, once... I've been saved through faith, I'm a Christian now, then all my, all my warfare is behind me and all the battles are done. But in fact, it's often the opposite. It's, it's after we've joined the Lord's army 
that now Satan sees us as a threat to his kingdom, as an enemy, as a worthy target. As I said in one of the opening sermons in this series, Satan doesn't kick a dead horse, right? He's not going to waste his energy on someone who's no threat to him. He's going to come after those who are a threat to his kingdom. And so if you are a follower of Christ, a soldier of the cross, then you are a threat to his kingdom because you have not only been saved, but you have the good, the good news of the gospel that can save others, that can do damage to his kingdom of darkness, that can bring the light of Christ into this world. And so he's going to try to throw everything at you that he can to try to stop you from doing that. And so where does this battle principally take place? Where do we fight this battle most frequently? Is it out in the streets? Is it, you know, like in our neighborhood somewhere? Is it is it in the hallways of our schools or, or, you know, where exactly do we fight these battles the most frequently? Well, as we learned last week, Satan's fiery arrows can come at us in many different ways from many different directions. But I'll tell you where the primary battleground takes place. It's not in our streets, it's not in our hallways, it's not even in our homes. I'll tell you where it is. It's between our ears. The primary battleground takes place in our minds. That is where the vast majority of battles against the enemy take place. For you see, Satan is going to be bombarding us with many different clever schemes and messages that he always cleverly mixes some truth into it, but there's always deception. And so he bombards us with these deceptions. In the the plan to create doubt in God's word, The plan to create confusion of, well, what what has God really said and what does God really mean? Further, to create discouragement that when, well, why aren't things going right? Why are things going wrong? And finally, even despair that perhaps God doesn't really care. He's not really there. He doesn't actually hear me when I pray. And he does all of these things within us to confuse, corrupt, and finally control the pattern of our thinking. For if Satan can come to the point of controlling not only what we think, but how we think, then that will determine how we act, and how we live, and how we speak. And so here we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and a key passage that talks about this spiritual battleground in which we fight. Verses 3 to 5, 2 Corinthians 10. We're going to read it one more time. There the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient unto Christ. So, what are the strongholds? Are they physical fortresses like this one that we have up here in this next slide? Are, are, they, are they physical places that we must go and do battle against? No. This passage tells us that in this spiritual war, the strongholds that Satan builds, the ones that he fortifies, that we have been given divine weapons to demolish, are not physical fortifications. They're not something that we go and attack with rocket launchers. So what are they? Look again at verse 5. It tells us. We see that the strongholds of Satan are actually arguments and pretensions, or as another translation puts, us, puts it, 
lofty opinions that go against the knowledge of God. So Satan's strongholds are in the realm of of thoughts, ideas, philosophies, arguments. These are where the strongholds reside. All the things that go against the revealed, declared knowledge of God. And so Satan's strongholds that he uses, or to form these strongholds, as I said, are his lies. That he mixes with some truth to make it go down easier. Because think about it this way. If Satan just came and actually told us the truth, would we go his way? If Satan came to us and said, okay, my plan is to cause as much pain on you as possible, to inflict as much damage on your family as possible, to cause you to curse God, to reject God, and finally, to die in your sin and to be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. That is my plan for you. Now come my way. Who of you would go with him? if he was plain in his speech, right? But does Satan come to us and say those things? No, of course not. He hides his lies, which are all saying the exact same things that I said bluntly and plainly, but he dresses them up in such a way that it sounds good to our ears. And so Paul says, clever arguments, lofty-sounding pretensions. And these things, when we hear them, when we believe them, it begins, strong, begins to build strongholds within our minds. And so this is why he goes further to say, so take every thought captive. So the battle is not happening in the streets. We don't have to take, you know, we're, we're not fighting against, you know, demons that we have to take captive or, or something like that. It's not that sort of warfare. We have to take thoughts captive that a demon may actually place into our minds or or a message that we get from the media, from a movie, from TV. Those thoughts enter our minds. That is where the battle is taking place. That is where we have to take it captive. Now let's go all the way back to the beginning to give an example of this because it's the very first one. In the Garden of Eden, we all know the story well. There's Eve hanging out one day. Everything's good. Everything's great. Everything's perfect, in fact. There's no sin in the world. And along comes Satan in the form of a serpent. And he comes up to Eve and he tempts her and he tests her mind. And listen to what he does beginning to plant confusion. He starts with a simple, innocent-sounding question. Did God really say that you must not eat from every tree in the garden? Simple question, right? Sounds innocent. Did God really say... He then corrupted her thinking towards God, towards God with this lie. After Eve responds and says, yeah, God said it and we're not even supposed to touch it, then Satan says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. So here we see now he directly confronts God's knowledge, God's truth with a lie. He says, no, God, God didn't actually say that. That's not what he meant. And then he's, he has the presumption to speak for God. He says, for God knows. Now he's speaking on behalf of God, making it sound good. You know what? God really wants your eyes to be opened so that you could become like him. That's the idea. That's the seed of what he's planting in Eve's mind. And then he's done his work. He steps back. And he simply watches as his lie does its work within Eve's mind. For we're given the description. 
Rather than taking this new thought captive and bringing it first to her husband, Adam, to say, hey, this talking serpent came along and this is what he said. What do you think? She didn't do that. And further, she didn't bring it to God who, remember, he came in, you know, in a, a physical way to talk and walk with them in the cool of the evening in the garden. She could have waited and said, hey God, this talking serpent came and this is what he said. He said that you know that this would open our eyes if we did it. What do you think? She could have done any one of those things, but she didn't. Instead, the Bible tells us that she looked at the fruit. Oh, it's so pleasing to the eye. Then she thought, oh, it must taste good if it looks good. And then she thought, and he says it's going to make me wiser if I eat it. And so finally she goes against God's word, the confusion, the lie has done its work. She acts upon the thoughts that took place in the battleground of her mind. She ate the fruit and it didn't end there. Adam, hey, come here, give it a try, it's good. He eats it and everything changed. Sin entered the world and now we've been battling it ever since. And so just like Eve the deciding factor between victory and defeat in our lives will happen within the battleground of our minds, within our thoughts. Now, of course, our thinking happens in, you know, in the physical way that we understand it, within our brains. Now, our brains, the best that we can understand them is that they far exceed the best supercomputers ever made. And here we have a, a picture of, you know, illumination of, of our brains as we can, can understand them, but scientists are still just scraping the surface of understanding the complexity of our brains. It's believed to be made out of an estimated 100 billion cells, 100 billion brain cells, give or take. So don't worry too much if you've lost a few. <laughs> and we always say, you know, you get bopped on the head, oh, you must have lost a few brain cells. That's probably true, actually, but with 100 billion, give or take, we can afford to lose some. And in fact, they're actually learning that the brain has an incredible ability to heal itself over time, believe it or not. It's, it's incredible how God has created our brains. Now, our brains are continually analyzing and responding to all of the sights, sounds, and smells all around us. And it's monitoring and controlling every function of our, our entire body continually. Now, these are just things that I've read that I'm conveying to you. So th these are people far smarter than me that have figured these things out. But they, they estimate that the brain executes over 5 trillion chemical operations every single second. Now, don't ask me how they estimated that. One second goes by. 5 trillion operations? I don't know. But apparently it's happening right now. That is what your brain is doing. All the time, every single second of every single day. And all the while that this is happening, it is transmitting signals throughout your body at speeds of up to 431 kilometers per hour. So right now, we're going to do just a little thing right now. I want you to wiggle your toes. Did you wiggle your toes? Did you feel any delay between thinking about wiggling your toes and your toes wiggling? Was there any delay? There actually was a slight delay, but because the speed of that signal was traveling at up to 431 kilometers an hour, that's not a long distance, so it happens just like that, right? So our brains are doing all of these things simultaneously without us even having to consciously think about it. Isn't that incredible? But now we're just talking about the logistics of what our brains can do, the functions. 
This isn't even beginning to touch upon the incredible capacity of our minds to think and learn and listen and reason and and dream and communicate just as we are doing right now. And so, however, because we are all born as slaves to sin because of what, what Eve and Adam did way back in the garden where their descendants, because we've been born with that corruption, our minds have also been corrupted to behave out of selfish and sinful desires. And so that is why our corrupted thoughts lead to corrupted actions. Right? Corrupted actions and corrupted behaviors don't just come out of nowhere. They come out of corrupted thoughts and corrupted thinking. Let me give you just a simple example. Who here loves grandma's chocolate chip cookies? Anyone? Did you have a grandma who made chocolate chip cookies or whatever cookies? Right? So we all have this backdrop that most of us, thankfully, We're blessed with a grandma who made delicious cookies. Now, just the thought of stealing a cookie from grandma's cookie jar, right? Just the thought of it is enough to sort of get us, you know, maybe drooling a little bit. Because those fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies look good, they smell good, and you know, you just know they're going to taste good. And so... You think about stealing the cookie. You then rationalize to yourself that, well, Grandma likely made those cookies for me anyways, so I don't really need to wait to receive her permission before I take one. And then just like that, the thought of stealing becomes the action of stealing. And your hand is in the cookie jar. Then if left unchecked, that act of stealing one one cookie will quickly become a pattern of stealing more cookies in the future. In fact, it'll come to the point of where you don't even think about it anymore. You're not even rationalizing to yourself what you're doing. You're just stealing at every opportunity. Then, without knowing it, a stronghold has been formed within your mind. And you won't realize a stronghold has been formed within your mind until Grandma catches you stealing the cookies and says, Hey, you didn't ask for permission. And then when you have to stop stealing... And start remembering to be patient and ask permission first before you take a cookie. This is when we realize that that it's not that easy because a stronghold has been formed from our thoughts to our actions. And the longer we do an action, the more ingrained it becomes as a pattern of behavior. Now one of the main reasons for this is that every time we act upon a thought, our brain creates a neurological pathway that remembers the action. The reason for this is that when our behaviors are repeated, those pathways become increasingly more stable and entrenched. And so the reason for that is then our brain can do more actions without having to think about it. It's why you can drive like from wherever to your house without thinking about it. You can be thinking about something else, but as soon as your brain says, I'm going home, it's done it so many times that the neurological pathway in your, in your brain to go home is so entrenched, you can be thinking about a million and one other things, but you will end up in your driveway because your brain is just basically on autopilot. You've done it so many times. So it, it basically works like this. One single behavior maps out just a little dirt road in your brain, and it creates that basic pathway for your thoughts to travel it again in the future. But as you repeat that behavior again and again, that dirt road soon becomes a superhighway, which allows for increased volume and frequency of your thoughts, 
to keep going down that road without hardly any conscious thought whatsoever, like I just explained, with saying, I'm going home, your brain goes on autopilot. This is how our, our habits get formed, of course. And so if we have formed a habit of stealing, it's now become a stronghold in our thinking, which is now acting out in our behaviors. It's a sinful behavior to steal. Now, of course, we think, well, cookies, it's not that bad. But stealing can lead to stealing other things than just cookies, right? If stealing becomes a pattern of behavior in our lives, that is a stronghold. And so in order to demolish that stronghold of stealing grandma's cookies, we must not only confess, yes, the sin of stealing, we must confess that sin to God, we must confess that sin to grandma to apologize, but we must also have that neurological highway in our mind that just went to stealing every time without thinking about it. We must redig that pathway from stealing and now reroute it to a new highway, which involves self-control and patience. Now here, Romans 12, verse 2 tells us, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Isn't that interesting? It's like Paul knew how the brain worked, right? He's saying the old pattern, it's ingrained, the worldly pattern, the sinful pattern, the flesh pattern, the one that says, I'm going to steal without thinking about it. But he says, we must be transformed. How? By the renewing of our minds. We must have new pathways made, not from the wrong, but rather to the right, to do what is good. And so this renewing of the pathways in our minds, it takes time and diligence. Because the fact is, the next time you smell grandma's fresh-baked cookies, that old thought of stealing is going to flare right back up again. And even if you've confessed it and repented of it, that temptation is going to be just as strong to go right back to that sinful behavior. And so this is why we have to take that thought captive. Remember, it's a battleground. That old enemy flares up and says, steal again. Now this is where, rather than acting on that thought, you then capture that thought and you drag it like a prisoner of war in to see your commanding officer who is none other than Jesus Christ. And you say, Jesus, this thought is telling me to steal. What do you say about it? And when Jesus declares, no, stealing is wrong. We are not going to act on that thought. This thought doesn't belong in you. Get it out of here. Well, then you have just won the battle. Now, it may seem like a very small battle, right? Like, okay, I didn't take the cookies. Big deal. It is a big deal. Why? Because you have stopped that pathway. You didn't walk it, and you made a new pathway to Jesus. Do you see where the renewing of our minds comes in here, my friends? The new pathway doesn't just go to something that we have to conjure up. The pathway takes us to Jesus every time. What does he say about this? What does his word say about this? And when we, when we create a pathway, when our thought comes, we're not sure about it. But we've already ingrained a pathway that before I do anything else, I'm going to Jesus. Remember, what did Eve fail to do when the serpent came? She failed to go to Adam. She failed to go to God who was readily available to her. But when we create this habit, this pathway in our minds that, you know what? Before I act, I'm going to go to Jesus. What does he say about this thought? Every time we win even a small victory, it's a big deal because this pathway is going to become stronger and deeper in our minds the more we do it.
And so I hope you're able to see that this applies to much, much more than whether or not you steal grandma's chocolate chip cookies. That's just a simple analogy because I want you to see that this same basic principle applies to every single possible thought or action that is humanly possible. Every single one. For Satan's strongholds can be formed by a wide variety of things. Unhealthy fixations. Fears and anxieties of all kinds. They can be in the form of a compulsion to do something that you know is wrong, but you just keep doing it anyways. They can be in the realm of our emotions, where, where we, let, we allow you know, bitter roots to, to take hold in us, and so bitterness becomes a stronghold. Where we just become embittered people. Or, or anger can become something that just a default, and I become an angry person. It's a stronghold of, of anger. It can help with, with envy and jealousy where we're constantly looking at other people and thinking, well, they have that and I don't have this. And, and so we become envious, jealous people. These are strongholds. He can do it in all sorts of different ways. One of the most powerful is the stronghold of when he corrupts sexuality. And because it's such a, a powerful driver in our, in our physiology, that this is one of the most common and one of the most powerful as, as Satan can, can tempt us with thoughts of lusts of all kinds. And no sexual sin will ever take place without first having taken place in the battleground of our minds. That is a fact. You will never act on anything in this realm unless you have first been thinking about it. That's where Jesus went with it, right? He said, you, you know, it's been said, do not commit adultery, the outward action, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. Where did that take place when he looked? In his thoughts, in his mind, in his fantasies. This is the battleground, and this is where we have to take those thoughts captive. Because if we do not take these thoughts captive and bring them to Christ, guess what those thoughts will do to us? These thoughts will take us captive. And we will be the ones dragged along in our actions to Satan's side, where then we are the ones who are being confused, corrupted, and finally controlled by our thinking. Satan knows this, of course, which is why he puts so much effort in his attempts to do exactly this to us. But here's the good news. Now that you know this too, you know how to counter his schemes. Because God has given you the spiritual weapons and the divine power necessary to demolish Satan's strongholds and to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Now, this doesn't mean that you, you, you know, don't have uh, to battle, but it does mean that we can live in freedom. We don't have to stay enslaved a moment longer. In the year 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation was proclaimed throughout the United States of America. The word spread from Capitol Hill down into the valleys of Virginia and the Carolinas and even to the plantations of Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama. The headlines declared everywhere, slavery legally abolished. However, the greater majority of slaves in the southern states went right on living as though there had been no emancipation. They went on living like they had never been set free. In fact, when one Alabama slave was asked what he thought of the great emancipator, whose proclamation had gone into effect, he replied, I don't know nothing about Abraham Lincoln, except they say he set us free. And I don't know nothing about that neither. And he went right back to picking his cotton. How tragic. 
A war was actually fought and won. A document had been signed. Slaves were legally set free. Yet sadly, so many continued to live out their years until their dying days as though nothing had changed. They had chosen to remain slaves, though they were legally free. Emancipated, they kept serving the same master throughout their lives. And so sadly, this is also true for many believers today. Jesus has set them free, yet they have chosen to remain slaves to those same strongholds that have gripped them all their lives. My friends, listen, it does not have to be that way. Jesus has set you free. You now have been given the divine power by the Holy Spirit to live as though you are free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And further, he has given you the spiritual armor necessary to demolish those strongholds that Satan has built in our lives. So here we come back full circle to where we began. One of those key pieces of spiritual armor protecting our minds is that helmet of salvation. And so you see, wearing the helmet of salvation is not just a one-time past event, but instead we must keep wearing it every day for our continual protection as we travel the roadway to heaven. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 and 10, our call to worship, the Apostle Paul gives Christians the instruction to not be spiritually asleep, but rather to be spiritually awake and sober. And then in verse 8, he uses uh, part of his armor of God analogy, and he says this, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So we must remember that Paul does not think of our salvation as merely a past event, which is our justification when we first believe. It's not only a present and ongoing event, which is our sanctification, as our sinful flesh is stripped away and we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. But Paul also views our salvation as a future event, which will be our final glorification when we stand in Christ's presence and we receive our redemption bodies. And so here we see that Paul says, put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. And so he's referring to that final glorification when we stand in Christ's presence. The hope of that day, that hope of that glorification yet to come serves as our helmet, protecting our minds from the deceptions, discouragements, and accusations of Satan. In Revelation 12.10, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And this means that he will hit us with both temptations to sin, and then he'll follow that up with taunting accusations when we do fall into sin. And he'll, he'll do this to discourage us to the point of despair so that we give up altogether. He will accuse us. There was an article in Christianity Today shared of one time when Pastor Richard John Newhouse was being driven from the Pitt Pittsburgh airport to a speaking engagement. And during the drive, one of his hosts persisted in decrying the disintegration of the American social fabric and the disappearance of Christian values from the culture. Cases in point were too numerous to mention, but the man valiantly tried to list them all anyways. And after the tedious and thoroughly depressing drive was over, Pastor Newhouse finally gave his host this reply. Yes, the times may be bad, but they are the only times we are given. Remember, hope is still a Christian virtue, and despair is a mortal sin. You see, my friends, a hopeless Christian is a contradiction in terms. A hopeless Christian is a contradiction in terms because we have the hope of salvation. 
The hope of salvation as a helmet. It protects us. So no matter what comes, we are protected. Pastor John MacArthur writes, The helmet of salvation is that great hope of final salvation that gives us confidence and assurance that our present struggle with Satan will not last forever, and we will be victorious in the end. For we know that the battle is only for this life, and even a long earthly life is no more than a split second compared to eternity with our Lord Jesus in heaven. We are not in a race we can lose. I like that. We are not in a race we can lose. For no matter what happens in this dark world or in your life personally, if you have received and are wearing Jesus' helmet of salvation, then you have already won the victory. You are more than a conqueror through Christ who loved you. And you have such a gloriously bright future ahead of you that it makes all of the troubles and trials of this dark world pale in comparison. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen. Lord Jesus, we give you all glory and honor for what you have provided for us so rich and free by your grace that we, Lord, can receive your salvation and wear it as a helmet. Lord, protecting our minds. And that, Lord, you have given us every spiritual weapon necessary to demolish the strongholds of the enemy. And that, Lord, as this battleground takes place within each one of our minds, even as we leave here today, may we learn to take these thoughts captive and to carve out that roadway straight to you, our commander. And to say, Lord, what do you think about this thought? What do you say? And then respond accordingly, according to your word. And that, Lord, as we do, we will grow increasingly in victory after victory, in battle after battle, as we don't walk Satan's pathway. Instead, those, mind, those, those paths within our mind are reformed in your direction, and we walk in victory day by day. Bless each one of us to this end, Lord. May strongholds even now come tumbling down by your great power that we can live as free, for you have truly set us free through what you have done. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.